0: Speaking of legends, in the handsome just-released book Don Binney Flight Path, Gregory O'Brien tracks the avian-like swoops and career of the late Tamaki Makoto painter, teacher and ornithologist Don Binney. Back in the 60s, Binny was something of a golden boy of New Zealand art. He was known for these kind of bold graphic paintings of birds in the landscape. They became beloved, but his legacy's really quite fascinatingly complex. And um, while Binny may be best known for his birds, as Flight Path the book shows, he was really closely observing New Zealand cultural energies in the way he looked at our landscape, sort of below their wings. Uh, the book draws extensively on Binnie's letters, journals, and other writing. It's the first full-length monograph of his work, and the author, the arts writer, painter and poet, and I'll call him a legend, Gregory O'Brien joins me now. Kia ora, Greg. Kia ora, Um, I want to start with Te Henga Bethel's Beach, which Binnie's, I think, talked about as his artistic Turanga Waiwai, but I believe you've got... Equally, I didn't realise a personal connection to this place in Auckland. Well, look, I feel like a huge connection
1: to, to that whole coast, to be honest. I spent a lot of my childhood at Pihar. Ah. Um, but tihinga um, is a more recent thing. I did go there occasionally during my childhood, but just about over about the last 15 or so years, we've been staying out there every summer with friends. And, um, and Binny's a ghost out there. You know, that's the, that's the, the coastal landscape of his great paintings, even when he was still alive, he was already a ghost out there. He didn't have to die to become a ghost. He was a real presence. I mean, I do think, um, you know, Benny's, um great bird paintings from out there—they um, they, they affect you. But certainly, if you go out to that place, you feel the presence of them too.
0: So, so when you started going there, what twenty years ago or so, as, as a you know, as an adult, mature adult, whatever, are you? You know, could you just feel that ghost? Was that part of you connecting with Don Binney on this project?
1: Yeah, it was. I think that's why I don't think I would have taken it um, up the project without that connection that had become very apparent to me, really. Yeah, and I could kind of feel the place has a real real sort of, you know, real spirit in it. Um, uh, You know, a spirit of, I guess, a Pākehā culture, Māori culture, very much so, but also, you know, going further back, there's an archaeological, geological sort of um, backstory. And of course, the bird life out there is this continuum that goes back, you know, for you know millions of years. So you sort of feel there's a kind of very peculiar energy there and a kind of beauty Um but also, we've been very lucky. We've been staying with some friends of ours, Deb Smith and Nico Stevens, who have a lease on a batch out there. So we always were able to go and stay in one of the old
0: red mm. wooden and, buildings. That's and like, just, just a, about just next to where Benny used to exactly. live. Exactly. So, so you uh, were just walking past the old place. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 So
1: it sort of, I felt very much that um, it's something you do feel at places in New Zealand. One feels a real, you know, sort of the real spirit coming out of them, the real, real force of, um, I don't know, power. And so, yeah. So that was it, really. I think that was the thing. I knew Benny would be a big book to write, a hard book to write, um, a contradictory and complex book to write. Mm. I think just somehow or other, just the fact that I sort of felt like I was grounded in Tihenga, so mm. I've written a little afterword to the book really, which is me explaining what I was doing there. Exactly. And um, I sort of felt like I was explaining something to myself about my own experience and in going into Benny, and um, you know, because he was someone I remember when I was a teenager. I mean. Binny was a New Zealand painting for me. I mean, I had a Binny print above my bed uh, when I was growing up. My parents gave me a copy of the... Uh, it was the Pipi Fararoa Mating, which I think the Auckland Art Gallery had done a poster of. But anyway, I had a poster of it, and it was mounted on a wooden backing, and someone had varnished it. And it had, like, um, <laughs> hooks, and, you know, and, and it hung on the wall like a painting. And I'm sure probably when I was a kid, this is from the late 60s, I probably thought I had the original Pipi Fararoa Mating on my, wow. above my bed for yeah. all my childhood. So I do think... Um, and until I left home, in fact, and I do sort of feel like, um yeah, I felt a real strong connection with that painting, and I sort of think probably the spirit of that painting sort of is part of the backstory to me writing the book too. It sort of um, it, um, it made me think this is something in my life I need to look at, um,
0: and it's 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 a shared thing. I mean, I think um Benny's paintings at that time were beloved, particularly by Pakeha. I think I, I was thinking about it reading your book. This is this kind of sense of of finding our place. It's part of that whole you know we talk about nation building but it's actually much more personal than that isn't it it's how we connect to the landscape as Pākehā. and um i grew up in, in a sort of bush clad area in Auckland myself and the paintings i think mean, they spoke to the conservation movement but it's it's like they kind of it's almost about Modern New Zealand taking flight or contemporary New Zealand taking flight or something.
1: Yeah, I think so. There's a bit in the book where um, where, um, Benny describes, I use use his letters to talk about when he was at Pukarua Bay. This is about 1970, with Michael King was there as well, the historian, and Sam Hunt, the poet, and actually Robin White, another painter, was there as well. Yeah. And you sort of feel, yeah, that was a collective energy at that time, and it was a... Not entirely Pakeha, but at the same time I do think it was pulling a lot of energy in from Maori culture. You know, um, they were all very connected. You know, with Ralph Horter and all these other people. And um, so I do, th- I do think be very wrong to think of these paintings as being very Pakeha paintings, because I think they're kind of not. You know, and I think, um, you know, I certainly know. Actually, I was talking to Fred Graham uh, at the um, at the opening of the book, and th- these paintings meant a lot to Maori. You know, they really are. Um, mm. Radical revisions mm. and and um, yeah, but like you say, they're part of the they're part of the modern world and they're swooping towards the future or flying the, the, towards the future.
0: There's a quote in the book from 1989 from Binny looking back and reflecting, he talks about almost feeling you know being fortunate for being in an era almost before the television. When he talks about a homogenous art scene, like everything, you know, he, it says it might look sexist and insular and very parkyhar and very male or whatever, but that it was also kind of. Is, I think the word's opportunistic, non-materialistic, you know, this kind of sense of everyone together a bit. So,
1: yeah, so. they were they were a tribe, you know. I mean, yeah, they totally were, and I guess they obviously had their um, fallings out. But, um, yeah, there's a bit in the book where he talks about when he was a finalist for the Benson Hedges Art Award. One year, I, mean, I think there were about eight or ten finalists, and, um, you know, his, his, a big, one of his great bird paintings, you know, over Tehinga Lake, where... Um, was in the final you know the final selection along with uh, an abstract work by gordon walters and also a landscape by peter mcintyre you know <laughs> so the judges had sufficient sort of breadth of vision to put a Binny bird and a walters and and a peter mcintyre in a shortlist <laughs> and in the end wong sing tai won with a kind of pop art inflected futuristic thing so um i think what he was he was he, i think he, he did feel you know by the 70s as you suggested before mark he did feel quite um a Little bit left behind, I mean, and but that's the problem because he was hyped up to the nth degree as a young man. You know, he sort of, yeah, sort of, he sort of was delivered onto the Auckland art scene in his early 20s. He was fantastic looking, he had a leather jacket, um, he was very partyable, he was very um, social. <laughs> um, he just married Ju- Judith Binney, his first wife, and she was yes. beautiful and brilliant. rising star, uh, you know, yeah. so they were kind of like they were um, star they were, couple, they were, they were go- a golden couple, and, and the paintings, of course, were, were fantastic, but also. They were totally, I don't know, the, the Auckland Art Gallery bought one in 64, you know. Um, but through the 60s, all the public galleries were buying them. He really felt embraced, I think, um, and deservedly. So the works are amazing. In the 70s, the works are still pretty amazing. But there's just this thing that the lens changes, you know, the the well, um, the times changed a bit. But also the art market is a market, you know, and um, you don't yeah. stay top of the pop.
0: Well, totally, you've got the Māori land marches, of course. You've got, you know, feminism... And, and women's rights, you've got a whole lot of stuff that kind of is sp- splits that kind of homogeneity. But, um, I, th- th- I mean, there's a painting that I've put a, a, an image of on our webpage that just totally fascinates me now, which is Vanishing Signs Number 2. Oh, with the moko, yeah. It's like this female moko floating in the sky above... <laughs> um, above a a, a graveyard, a ratana graveyard, no less. Mm, As this kind of expression of, I mean, you can see this kind of Anglican kind of, uh, we're all in this together expression of of Māori and Christian and land. But now it's kind of like, what were you thinking? (laughs) So you wouldn't do that now? No,
1: you almost (laughs) wouldn't accept that he went through the whole customary channels to do it and he was invited to do the second painting with the moko in the sky, you know, by the descendants of the person wow. that had carved the gravestones and right. sorry, carved the wooden grave the grave markers. And um you know, he was sort of um I th- I do that was one of the things that was a real revelation to me. I I mean I would met Binny back in the day. I thought he was like a I don't know, a cross between a high Anglican bishop and a and a high court judge. You know, very <laughs> English guy. His body language, the way he walked, the way he talked, um you know, beautifully eloquent, loquacious, um, verbose at times, but he was amazing, you know, but but a very almost like a great image of a kind of colonial force. But then mm. actually, um reading his letters, reading his diaries, following his life in detail, he was in hugely sort of knowledgeable and immersed in Maori culture. Out at Te he was involved in all the archaeological things that were going on there, trying to work out. And he was working with Maori, too, to work, you know, where where the food sources were, where where the urupa were. Um, He was, you know, he spent days, months, you know, years of his life in that space as well. And so when he did that painting, yeah, which, yeah, it sort of does look like, what was he thinking? It's sort of, it is a slightly awkward painting. I don't think it's a great painting as a painting. But It is a thing I thought, he went through, and he went through the, he was he was... You know, asked to, to 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 work this painting. He was, he and he was uh, in he, London, he, wasn't he, wasn't he in London when he painted that one? Am I wrong? He was, yeah. No, Just to save no, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well,
1: he actually, I suppose, his, his memories of New Zealand became very intense. There's quite a long story about that painting, actually, but but he did take it to one of the um, to a kui, uh, you know, a uh, tohunga, basically in Auckland, yeah, and got it blessed, and then took it down to Rotorua. There's two, there are actually two versions the same subject, one of them's in the Rotorua Museum. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, to honour the the, the um, ancestors and the descendants. And, um, but I mean, Benny was very, very knowledgeable about Tapu. I mean, there's stories in the book too about him, you know, if they, he was walking with friends, hmm. there'd be areas on the bush walk where you couldn't, you know, drink or eat anything. Ah. You know, he was aware that this is an area where you don't do that, you know. Yeah. And um, um, and also, of course, the, the um, place names and the names of native birds you know from the word go from the get go from 1963 his first show he always used the maori names that was the um almost a kind of, it was it was kind of quite trailblazing and kind of visionary, mm. i think so he but was, it was, he was so deep but yeah. wasn't he, wasn't just voyeuristic or because he liked the sound it was actually a, he had a sense of um this other this earlier knowledge this earlier poetry
0: so he was a bridge builder and yet, you know, we talk about London. He doesn't seem to like London very much. Uh, he's not really doing that. And he comes back and things are changing. And then get this in the mid seventies, he gets evicted from his beloved to hang at Bethel's Beach.
1: Yeah, you know, there was a there was a big falling out and there, but times were changing there too. Someone was subdividing at the other end of the beach. You know, there was um and there was a uh, the environmental movement was becoming a little bit fractured with some people thinking that there should be no human habitation at all at Tihinga, mm. you know, i.e. that Binny shouldn't really be staying out there in his little red batch in the Bethel family enclave at the southern end of the of the um, of the beach. Um, yeah, the world was getting complicated, and, he, and yeah, and there was a, there was a quite a dramatic falling out, and he ended up um, without Tihinga, and I think that was a huge blow. And then there's almost like about fifteen years in the wilderness, you know, where he. He does sporadic paintings. He was drawing for a while. Then he was taking black and white photos. Then he was writing novels furiously for a few years. Um, Then he was sort of throwing himself back into the Anglican church, you know, and he became a lay preacher. Um, And he was, at the whole time, he was also teaching at Elam. So Mm. in some ways, he let himself, I think, be diverted. And then I think really probably by the time he was in his late 50s, he left Elam and really I think he kind of started to hear the birds again. And that's, I guess, the final sort of... um, passage in the book, the final main chapter, is really Benny going back to birds without the modernism, without the um without the agitation, without the kind of almost kind of furious energy and drive of the earlier paintings. They're far more distilled and quiet. Don't you think, Mark? I mean you look yeah, at Yeah, the, they I are. Mean, I a lot of people at the time, this is I mean I was around, you know, working in a gallery with you in fact at the time. People thought he'd actually become a bit boring or he'd sort of shut down yeah. the um
0: the kind of the modernist sort of drive in his work. Um well Bill Hammond had become the kind of edgy bird painter, hadn't he, by the nineties. Yeah, he sort of had really. <laughs> and
1: um and so Binny was sort of almost a bit anachronistic. And mm. um Um but then I think I actually think having you know, having spent, you know, like a few years of my life um with, you know with with Binny sitting on my shoulder like like a parrot, you know, um um the late paintings I do think actually have something now. It's not it's not the most dramatic thing, but in terms of I guess the shape of his life's work. I do think they're very, um, very moving and valid, and some of them I think are fantastic.
0: Well, the, the book is, is 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 lavish, and there is so much work in there, and there's so many beautiful late paintings. So that is a revelation of the book. But I guess I wanted to go back to that kind of wild, so-called, as you call it, wilderness years. And that what comes through again and again was a certain amount of bitterness or. Difficulty with having been that golden boy in the 60s and suddenly not, and seeing the whole postmodern globalism. And you know, we'll be talking about Jim Allen on the show (laughs) later, but you know, that you know, suddenly he's not in the middle of the limelight and he comes across a little ungrateful, really. You know, because it's slightly, you (laughs) know, (laughs) um. No, he's, Why are the, artists like this? I mean, you deal with artists all of the time. Um, all of them feel like outsiders. So here um, you have the guy who was the most fettered, mm. and he's feeling like an outsider 10 years later or something.
1: Yeah, no, 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 totally. But as you say, I mean, there, were, there was the rise of feminism, internationalism, all these other things came along. I don't think he needed to be as worried about it as he was. I think it was just, look, he was an only child. He was brought up in, a, you know, in a um, quite an insular environment in some regards, I think. And, um... And I say, and when he went to university, was thrown out into the world, and and was just hugely embraced. And I think he, this is a golden boy problem. And then at the point that people started criticising him, and there was good, valid criticism. You know, I mean. Um, but he couldn't take it. He was he spoiled. He was he big, spoiled? Sounds yeah. <laughs> You could almost say that. <laughs> uh, but um, he felt people were out to get him, and he felt like his expression was he was being white entered by the art curatorium and the criti- critics. Uh, you know, yeah. he was being white entered. He was termites were um, destroying his foundations and make, wanting him to end up in a heap on the ground, and so he did get. Um, <laughs> You know, but I mean, critics do do that. I mean, we all get punched up and knocked around um, doing the work that we do in the artistic sphere. But yeah, it's interesting because I almost feel, um, yeah, when, when reading through his letters, I feel like he's overreacting a lot of the time. He's right. um, um, he's being very um, you know, he's got a very thin skin. He should be absorbing these these knocks and blows. And also because there were people that were still supporting him. And also it, he mm. was always selling work, Mark. That's the other thing. I mean, it wasn't like. You know, the people had stopped buying the work and he was suddenly broke. Well, I mean, you
0: mentioned, though, that he, you know, just when the art market went crazy in the 80s for big paintings, you know, he'd stopped producing pretty much. So he wasn't really, yeah. his, his ego was getting in the way of him actually making a lot of money, probably.
1: <laughs> probably. I mean, but again, he's, full of, he's, a, he's a contradictory person. I mean, he went to Mexico in the late 60s. Oh, yeah. Loved the work of Mexican muralists. And if you look at his technique as a painter of, <clears throat> you know, oil paintings and acrylic paintings on board, it's it's very much his, his his paintly language is very akin to mural paintings. Flat areas of colour, strong graphic images look that look great from two hundred meters away and they look great close up too. But you know, he knew how to run sort of graphic scale. He was a fantastic sort of um uh, he was a great great compositor of imagery, you know, and uh, mm. that's why the paintings are so great and also why you remember them. You see one and you can replay it in your mind years later, because they have that strong graphic quality. But yeah, so the 80s come along and there's all these corporations wanting big paintings. You think, well, this has been his moment. He's actually the guy that was nurtured on Mexican muralism. You know, Um, here's Auckland in the 80s. Ta- take it away, Don. But he sort of had run out of steam a bit. I think, um, you know, I know his mother died in the middle of the 80s too. I think there are all sorts of personal things, but I think middle age didn't agree with him. And also the other thing is after he'd left um yeah t in, in about 77 78 he sort of seemed to go from being you know when you look at the early photos of him he was a adonis you know had golden hair blue eyed <laughs> really fit did, could swim long distances he sort of stopped roaming the landscape he stopped being in the place no. and became sedentary and um actually lost his physical fitness and i think that's probably the thing about painting he wasn't someone and he does say this in the book that um Painting for him was always quite hard work. He wasn't a natural. You know, I was was talking to Robin White about this because Robin just is in love with what she does when she's doing it. You know, And she's a painter, you know, in some ways you could say similar to Binnie, but she really, she loves the environment of the studio and just doing the stuff. Whereas Binnie did say for him it was always hard work. Hmm. And, you know, so I guess at the point that he probably was, he had had probably hit middle age, being middle aged at about 40, which is a bit tragically young, really, I would think. Uh, But at that point, yeah, he sort of lost... There were a couple of... I think there were three quite big paintings after that time, but that's it, you know. Mm. And uh, he did a mural in the late 60s for um, Victoria University, the Manor Island mural. Um, But then that was it, and you'd sort of think, damn, you know, I think we almost... Circumstances or... Something meant that we missed out on Binny as as probably the great New Zealand muralist, which he he could look he could have been it, you know. So there, there's a chapter I couldn't write because it didn't happen. No, I, no. I well,
0: yeah. I mean, one of the the things about the book which is great, and you mentioned Mexico, was to to, to define that Binny wasn't just the bird painter, which I think. Pissed him off just to be called the bird painter. But at the same time, he is labelled quite clearly in your book as an ornithologist. And uh, he was obviously drawing birds from a young age as a child. And I, suppose, I mean, I was kind of thinking, you know, he didn't train as an ornithologist. It's quite a grand word. But <laughs> I wondered about that whole thing of watching birds, about sitting in the landscape, being mm. in the land and just looking and and being with it. It seems like that was part of his art being an ornithologist.
1: That's that's totally right, Mark. I mean, what you're saying, really... I mean, Binny is the bird, you know. He's an ornithologist, but actually those paintings, and also a lot of the paintings that don't have birds in them that are of landscapes, you know, Binny is the set of eyes in the landscape, He, or he's the single eye of the bird, you know, looking out at you from the painting. But he is... It is about that whole... He wasn't a purist ornithologist. He wasn't wanting to um, discover new species of birds or anything like that. He was out there sort of... Out of a sense of probably fellow feeling with birds, Um, but also I guess a love of the visual form of them, but also that whole romantic myth of you know being as free as a bird, of being able to hover. (laughs) Having said that, though, I do think the one important thing in the the book, I reckon, this is an important point anyway. He did love ground uh, ground level birds. He loved birds that foraged. He loved fern birds, and and things like that. So his whole idea of birds wasn't just this kind of you know. um, you know sort of um, oh, the
0: dotteral you said he's like a dotterel. I I
1: yeah yeah you know because <laughs> he's sort of related to it because that's because we're like those ground birds we're the birds that sort of have to hop around and we're sort of a little bit awkward and a little bit little bit comical probably again I think he really related very strongly to those he probably also related to albatrosses and frigate birds and um and tropic birds and what have you these high flying gliding you know otherworldly things but there was also just this sense of um being at work on the ground and in nature and in the bush and feeling the contours of the land under your feet. And so I do think that's kind of quite a lovely thing that became very apparent to me writing the book. Yeah, here's a really, like a big respect, you know, for these these birds have mana, you know, these, are, these ground, little ground-hugging things are fantastic. <laughs> and also, like, he loved wetlands, you know, it wasn't all just about beautiful coastline with, you know, sort of endless horizons and things. Those romantic tropes. It was yes. about wetland environment. He really <laughs> understood all that stuff, which, you know, the environmental movement, sort of washing in over him and behind him and alongside him, made us all aware of too. You know, these whole sort of, you know, wetlands as the kidneys of the, of the landscape. Essential part of life.
0: <laughs> Gregor O'Brien, thank you for joining me. Uh, the book is Don Binney, Flight Path Out Outland, Auckland University Press. It's wonderful. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thanks, Mark.